the vast majority of it was going to pay for the insurgency. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. I think there's plenty of evidence that the military did it. And off I went with two suitcases and some bed sheets and a couple of pots and pans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the final episode of the Dyson House podcast for season one. It's been a hell of a journey discovering this world of international affairs with you all and finding out how to get into those industries that change our world. So for the last time until August, I'm your host, Peter Bateman. As always, we're brought to you by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. On our final episode, we were joined by former Ambassador John Woods, who spent an astonishing 42 years with the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and held diplomatic postings for more than half of that time. He served the interests of Australia in Europe, the Middle East, Asia, North Africa and South America and has more than a few stories on the incredible moments in history he's been fortunate enough to witness. For a lot of our listeners, a career in diplomacy and a position as ambassador is the end game for their emerging careers. If that's the case, you'll want to listen to this twice to pick up all the tips and understand what it takes and what it's like to be appointed an ambassador for your country. Even if a career in diplomacy isn't for you, it's a fascinating insight into what it takes. So please enjoy 40 Years of Diplomacy with John Woods. Hi, John. Thanks for joining me today at the Dyson House podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation to talk to you and to talk to this wider audience. John, I want to spend equal amounts of time picking your brain on how aspiring diplomats might get into the world of diplomacy and hopefully work as ambassadors eventually. But I also want to cover some of the highlights of your fascinating four-decade career at DFAT. So maybe it's best we start all the way back at the beginning. Did you always know you wanted to be an ambassador? Frankly, no, but I grew up in the country in northern New South Wales, and I became very interested, obviously, uh, in the world around me and in international affairs during school. Then I had the opportunity to become an exchange student to the United States and spent a year on exchange in the United States, and that really opened my eyes to the world around me and to the exciting possibilities beyond Australia's shores. So after that, I came back to study at the University of Sydney and uh, really from a very early time at the beginning of my university career and my university studies, I was pretty much focused on diplomacy as a career. But it really wasn't until I'd had that experience in the United States and then come back to, to see the possibilities through the university that I really focused on it. Just focusing perhaps on your specific path from once you left university, I want to talk later on about what you might have to do in 2018. But for you, what was it like once you, once you graduated university? What were the steps you took to sort of realize that dream of yours? Well, I was fortunate enough to get a first-class honours degree in government at Sydney University and even more fortunate to be selected as I was completing my honours year into the then Department of Foreign Affairs intake. So it was, again, quite a, an extensive selection process, a little bit different from the selection process that the department undertakes now, but I was very lucky to be selected, offered the position, I took the position, and I left the university and then the very next year went down to Canberra and started as a graduate in the department. Can you tell me about your first overseas assignment? I think that's something that kind of allures people to the job. I understand you, your first assignment was Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. What was it like to be given that responsibility and to be heading overseas for the first time? 
Well, it was interesting just before that I joined the Department of Foreign Affairs as it then was in 1973 and in August 1973 set off for Lebanon and studied Arabic at what became the rather infamous British spy school called Mikas in Shemlan in a little village in the mountains outside Beirut and I studied Arabic for about 10 months. I wasn't the most brilliant student of Arabic, I have to say. Then during that time, the postings were made and I was posted to be third secretary in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. We were just in the process of opening the new embassy in Jeddah, the first embassy that we had in in Saudi Arabia. So it was very exciting, quite a privilege, but also particularly challenging in those days back in then 73-74. What was your role as the third secretary there? Well, we did pretty much everything. Obviously, the standard sort of work that third secretaries do, political reporting, economic reporting, contributing to the output of the embassy from that point of view, representations, helping business, but also quite a bit of passport work, consular work, helping out as well on administrative issues when that was necessary. So it was a great experience and you know a wide scope of responsibilities. We were quite a small embassy and you had to uh, contribute right across the board. So when did you first get appointed as an ambassador? And maybe also you might be able to just talk on, on what that actually is. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just, for our listeners... Of course, um, the ambassador or indeed in Commonwealth countries, the the High Commissioner is the foremost Australian representative in those countries and they are in charge of the diplomatic missions, so embassies in non-Commonwealth countries and High Commissions in Commonwealth countries. And as ambassador, they represent all of Australia's interests with their country and also quite often ambassadors are accredited on a non-resident basis to other countries. And so in 1999, I was appointed as ambassador to Venezuela and I took up that post in March 2000. It was a very, very exciting time, a very exciting appointment for me a huge honour to be appointed as uh, Australia's ambassador. I had, from Caracas in Venezuela, non-resident accreditation to Colombia, to Ecuador, to the Dominican Republic, and also to Haiti. So I had five countries in total, and I visited the other four frequently, but was resident in Caracas. I might get back to South America a little later, but I wanted to ask you another question, which perhaps isn't the fairest question to ask someone who's been a diplomat for over 40 years. You lived a pretty amazing life. It kind of took you from the Middle East, North Africa, Europe, Asia, and then South America, as you mentioned. And there must have been struggles and magic moments and all, everything in between all along the way. But what were some of the highlights? Well, indeed, it was an opportunity to see a huge amount of the world, to experience that, to live in different countries to understand and get to know different countries and different cultures, but most importantly, to serve Australia's interests in all of the countries to which I was posted. 
I think some of the the very best moments involved the work done right throughout my career in advancing Australia's national interests. And that ranged right across the board. For example, I was a member of the Australian negotiating team for the Australia-Chile Free Trade Agreement, which we concluded in 2000. It was signed in 2008, came into force in 2009. That was the first free trade agreement signed between Australia and a country in Latin America, and a particularly exciting role to play in that that process. But other great highlights from a work point of view, managing high-level visits, visits of prime ministers, ministers, parliamentary delegations, very senior officials, These require an enormous amount of work, of coordination, of linking with people back home, linking with your host governments, but it's always very rewarding, very exciting when the visit comes to a conclusion and you get some very positive outcomes. Of course, in pretty much every area of one's responsibility as a diplomat and particularly as an ambassador, there's enormous satisfaction in the work, in the advocacy that we undertake for Australia's interests, in the representations that we make, occasionally in the reporting that you're able to make, which can have a significant impact on policy development in Australia. Some of the particular highlights were in the public diplomacy fields as well, where you're advancing Australia's interests through soft diplomacy, through promoting a greater understanding of Australia, and that is very important. That was particularly important in South America, where there isn't as much understanding of Australia as there should be, and so we worked hard to improve on that. One particular example of that, which I was very proud of and enjoyed enormously, and it was a particular highlight, was that I found out when I was in Lima that the Sydney Dance Company was going to be basically overflying Peru to perform in in Colombia and then go on to Mexico, the United States, and then on to, to Europe. And I worked very hard, one, to convince them to come to Lima for a, a one-off performance, and then to provide and to find all the sponsorship to sustain that performance. And we succeeded. We had a fantastic performance of the Sydney Dance Company in September 2013. It was a great highlight, and it put Australia on a map in Peru as far as culture and the excitement that that Australia generates and a lot of those activities in Australia generate. And It was a huge success and something that we in the the embassy felt very proud of. And it was, I thought, from all points of view, a job very well done. There's another point I would make, generally speaking, as some of the best moments as well of being particularly an ambassador or the leader of your your embassy or your, your high commission. And that is that there's a huge satisfaction in leading, in putting together and building and then leading a very highly effective team of your diplomats, of your locally engaged staff in your particular mission in maximising their capacities to grow and to contribute 
and to achieve what the government wants you to achieve. So it is a hugely exciting, hugely rewarding career. I was very honoured to have such a, a long period and a rewarding period with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty incredible experience. So what are the demands of the job that maybe some people don't realise? Obviously, you make it sound pretty amazing just there, but I, I can't imagine it's always just everything's going smoothly. So if you might talk on that for a bit. There are lots of demands of the job that are not all that that obvious. Let me start with the, one would call it sometimes the scourge of modern communications, but or the immediacy of modern communications. It's not really a scourge. It's generally a huge advantage. But operating as a diplomat in a completely different time zone with a huge time difference between home base here in Canberra and the country you're serving in has its own challenges. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you a kind of example. You know, quite frequently in Lima in Peru, we were woken up at midnight with a phone call from DFAT in Canberra saying, oh, there's a report that's just appeared on CNN or on some other media outlet that there's been a bus crash in Peru. This happened maybe six, eight, ten times a year. You know, are there any Australians involved? What's happened, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, as I was saying, you know, something that is a bit irritating, but of course it's the working day back in Canberra, and so they want the information as soon as they possibly can, and that's what we're expected to do. So, you know, that gets to be a little challenging at times. Often you're the ministers and your senior bosses in Canberra demand immediate answers, which can be very difficult to obtain. Just take the bus crash example. You know, typically they, they crash in remote, difficult areas. And we had some excellent staff in our embassy in, in Lima who had contacts with local hospitals, local police in those areas and could talk to them pretty quickly to establish whether there were any foreigners firstly on board and then who the foreigners might be. But that pressure for information is one which is particularly demanding, but it, it can be quite exciting, but it, you know, it can wake you up at night, that's, the, that's for sure. Uh, and that goes to another point about particularly being the ambassador for Australia in a country abroad. You're the ambassador 24 hours a day, seven days a week whether that's from the point of view of the country to which you're accredited or from the point of view of your bosses, the minister in particular, occasionally the prime minister back home. You know, they, if they want you to, to do something, you're on the other end of a telephone, you're told to do it and you go away and, and you do it as best you can. So that's exciting. It's, it's a great challenge, but it's not sort of sitting quietly waiting for things to happen. Far from it. You're, you're very, very active and having to work particularly hard. I think there are other demands of the job that people sometimes need to be more aware of. If you go into very different cultures with very different ways of doing things, then it takes a while to learn the most effective way of getting 
what you want, advancing the interests that you want to advance in those cultures and in those countries. And that's one of the the skills that diplomats and ambassadors uh, have to learn and have to learn very quickly. That's why speaking a foreign language in those countries can be extremely important. It's a bit hard often to operate just in English if few others around understand it or can communicate very well with you. The language skill is, as I was saying, very important. There are obvious impacts as well, some of the the difficulties that people don't really, I I think, fully appreciate involve security, involve sometimes you're posted to cities where there's a much greater level of personal or threats to personal security. Of course, the Australian government does a lot to make sure that its diplomats abroad and the staff working in embassies work in a secure and safe environment. But, you know, you can't control necessarily crime in cities or terrorist events or other threats to one's security. So there are those physical aspects. Sometimes you're living in cities with much higher levels of pollution, for example, or much worse conditions than we have here in Australia. And, and indeed, in fact, that's, that's the case pretty much in most countries around the world because we are very blessed in this country. We're an extremely lucky country from that point of view. The other issue that people really need to, to be aware of is the impact on family of being a diplomat, of working abroad and of representing your country abroad. One could argue that these impacts are very similar, whether you're working as a diplomat or you're representing an Australian company abroad or you're, you're living abroad. That's true. But there are very big impacts and they involve things like people needing, your family needing to understand the culture, needing to come to terms with the different language, needing to feel comfortable in the the city in which they're, they're living. All of those can, of course, provide some strains. And there are numerous examples throughout my career where you know, families found those pressures sometimes quite difficult to accommodate. So the officer, the diplomat, might have been fine, but the families might have might have suffered to some extent. And that's another important aspect of being an ambassador. You have to be aware of that. You have to know your staff and their families pretty well, and you've got to do your best to help them if they get into situations where you know they may not be coping they may not be as happy in their their posting as you would want them to be and as they should be what type of person makes a good ambassador or or would suit the role and uh, has that changed at all in your time oh no i think there are fairly standard requirements you can't actually talk about though you know a, a set of requirements and if you meet that fine, you'll be an ambassador. No, there were ones that are not particularly measurable either that come into this. But the sorts of things that go together to make up a a good ambassador in, in no particular order, but obviously a very strong skill base, expertise, hopefully, but not always, in the country to which they're accredited, language skills, clearly 
an outgoing personality, a passion for the country to which they're committed, a passion for, for the job that they're doing, all of those become very important as they're projecting Australia, projecting what Australia wants to achieve in the, in the country concerned. But then there's the other capacities as well, a leadership capacity, the ability to form good, strong relationships, not just with the people that you're dealing with in the country concerned, but also building those relationships, building a strong sense of team and then leading that team within your embassy. That is an extremely important characteristic and where those leadership attributes are sometimes lacking. You often have embassies that are not as functioning as well as they should be and where the morale and the, the happiness of the people involved is not as high as it, it should be and that you would want it to be. So it is a really wide variety of really important factors, I think, that go together to make up a good ambassador, but they, they really haven't changed particularly uh, over time. Just on that point, I guess, what can people in 2018, young people in particular, what can they do to give them their best chance of reaching their goals of in diplomacy or, or of becoming an ambassador? Well, uh, obviously, the, the first step is to be selected for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I'm a bit out of the, the actual mechanics of the, of the selection process at this point, even though I'm currently... Uh, teaching a subject at Melbourne University called International Policy Making and Practice. Um, so I get asked this question quite a bit by my, my students who are typically sort of focused on the possibility perhaps of being selected for, for DFAT and then going on being a diplomat and becoming an ambassador. Basically the advice is you really need to work very hard in your university work. You need to have pretty much an honours, a high-level honours degree. It doesn't particularly matter in, in which subject because, you know, DFAT takes recruits who may be economists or lawyers, they may be linguists, they may be arts graduates, they may be scientists. Okay, very occasionally they will take a doctor or somebody with agriculture, agricultural science, those, those sorts of qualifications. I don't think we've recruited too many architects, but that's beside the point. Uh, but essentially, uh, you've got to show that you're, you've, you've achieved very well in your study, whether at the undergraduate uh, and then honours level or indeed at the, at the postgraduate level. But increasingly, what selection committees, I think, are impressed by are evidence of other engagement, whether it be volunteering in a, in a related area or not just travel abroad, but working abroad, engaging abroad in one way or another. If you're fortunate enough to um, spend some time working for a, a company abroad, for example, or perhaps a, a UN body, the UN's a bit more difficult, but sometimes they, they do take on board interns or people like that and it, it that gives you then a real addition to your academic qualification because you come back from that and you present as somebody who has su successfully worked abroad and accommodated a lot of the challenges that people will find when they first go abroad those those cultural differences that that need to 
really understand how this new environment, this new culture, this new country operates. So all of that is, is particularly useful. And people are looking for, obviously, very hardworking people, people with a high capacity, people who are very flexible, people who are, are very reliable. I guess having a passion, having a passion about international affairs generally, or if not the broad, at least particular countries or particular issues within that very large portfolio. All of those things, I think, go together to you know, help people now get through the various stages of a, of a recruitment process. Of course, once you're in and accepted into the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, then it's you know, a hard slog up the, the various levels until you get to the point where you might be eligible to be considered for appointment as, as ambassador. And at that point, you know, the department will ask you to express interest in maybe a, an appointment as an ambassador to two or three countries, for example. And then that the department will put a recommendation to the minister, typically, and you may be lucky enough to be selected to, to become an ambassador. There are a few political appointees made, people like Joe Hockey in, in Washington, for example. That's a different process. But the vast majority of ambassadors uh, in the Australian system go through that appointment process that, that I just described. But actually, uh, I, I could put in a little plug here as well for uh, people aspiring to diplomacy as a career. They can always join a body like the Australian Institute of International Affairs, it offers a great insight into international affairs and into the practitioners of diplomacy, the practitioners of international relations. I must say it was one of the insights that I had as a, as a student at the University of Sydney. I went to several AIIA meetings in, in Sydney and heard some very distinguished people from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade speak at those, or Department of Foreign Affairs as it was then, speak at those, those, those meetings. And they were quite influential in persuading me and in confirming that this is really where I wanted to, to go. So something like becoming a member here, coming to our events where you can, participating in things like the, we have a, an international careers conference in, in August, which is specifically targeted at looking at career possibilities in international relations. All of that is terrific. And also a great compliment here to those who volunteer here in the Institute and help out with the Institute. They're doing a great job and those who are interning as well. I can't say that that's an instant guarantee to getting into diplomacy uh, in the future, but it sure will help, that's for sure. Thank you very much for that recommendation, John. <laughs> I just want to finish with just one question. Why should people want to become an ambassador? Well, it's one of the, the great privileges, I think, that anybody can have to serve their country in this, in this way. But it is, in many ways, there's no better position to be in than an ambassador to be able to to really develop a deep understanding, appreciation of the countries to which you're accredited, the country to which you're posted. 
the ability to be able to form the relationships to build and then develop those relationships to advance the Australian national interest in that way. It's a huge privilege, it's a huge honour, it, it is very exciting, very rewarding work. It's not being overtaken by tweets or, you know, by electronic media. That's having an impact, sure, on the career and on uh, what diplomats do. But the key point about diplomats, when you think about it, is that they're out there building those linkages, those relationships in those countries. The ministers, the prime minister, they're increasingly having their relationships with their counterparts, but those uh, change all the time and, and physically they can't do that all over the world and that's where diplomats come into their own. So it's developing that, that relationship, those understandings. It's such rewarding work and I really encourage those who have an interest, have a passion and have really the work ethic and the credentials to back them to consider it as a, as a career in the future. Well, you certainly have a very enviable resume. Thank you very much for all your insights and thanks again for coming on. You're welcome, Peter. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening and a special thanks to those who've been following along from the start. It's not too late to subscribe to our show and give us a like or review on whatever podcast platform you use or better still, share us with your friends. You can currently follow us on Twitter at Dyson House, that's D-Y-A-S-O-N House, and check back in August for brand new episodes and season two of the Dyson House podcast. If you live in Melbourne, be sure to check out the AII Victoria's website at internationalaffairs.org.au forward slash Victoria, where you can sign on to become a member and get access to bonus episodes plus discounted events in Melbourne and access to our academic journal. Keep checking the website for upcoming events throughout July at Dyson House in Melbourne. Hopefully we'll see you around. Thanks again for the support. Until August, I'm Peter Bateman. Thanks for listening.